So our first reading is from Revelation chapter 22, starting at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They'll see his face, and his name will be, will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will, need, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. The Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Okay, so the second reading is from Joshua, chapter 20 to 21. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge, as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When they flee to the one of these cities, they are to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders of that city. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive into their city and provide a place to live among them. If the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the elders must not surrender the fugitive because the fugitive killed their neighbor unintentionally and without malice, aforethought. They are to stay in that city until they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then they may go back to their own home into the town from which they fled. They set apart Kedesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Nephtali, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. East of the Jordan, on the other side of Jericho, Jericho, they designated Bezer in the wilderness, on the plateau, in the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead, in the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan, in the tribe of Manasseh. Any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. Now the family heads of the Levites approached Eleazar, the priest, Joshua, son of Nun, and the heads of the other tribal families of Israel at Shiloh in Canaan and said to them, The Lord commanded through Moses that you give us towns to live in with pasture lands for our livestock. So as the Lord had commanded, the Israelites gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands out of their own inheritance. So then we're going to skip to verse 41, the same chapter. The towns of the Levites in the territory held by the Israelites were 48 in all, together with their pasture lands. Each of these towns had pasture lands surrounding it. This was true for all these towns. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors. And they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. This is God's word.
Alex, thank you. Um, if you haven't met, my name's Simon Dixon. Uh, I'm on staff here at church. Uh, lovely to meet you afterwards if you haven't done already. Um, before we begin, let's pray, because we always need to ask for God's help. Let's pray. Father, we believe that all scripture is God-breathed, all of it is useful for teaching us, correcting, rebuking, training us in righteousness, that we're equipped for every good work. And so, Father, um, now please, Lord, give us eyes to see what's going on, Uh, give us ears to hear what you have to say for us tonight. Um, Please, Lord, may we consider very carefully tonight how we hear. Amen. Um, so we spent a while now in the book of Joshua. We're nearly at the end. And when I read um, Old Testament narrative like this, I always like to imagine what it would be like if someone like J.J. Abrams or Steven Spielberg could make a kind of an epic out of it, like an, an HBO box set. Uh, season season one be chapters one to twelve. Okay, chapters one to twelve. I think chapters one to twelve will be pretty popular viewing. Uh, so it's basically the story of how um, God's people Israel come into this land, uh, this physical land in Israel, as infested by evil people, wicked people, uh, and God drives out their enemies. Um, it'd be great viewing. It'd have like an all-star cast, um, battles every week. Um, it'd be a lot of CGI needed. It'd be awesome. I think it'd be pretty popular, regardless of if you're a Christian or not. I think season two would be chapters 13 to 21. Would probably be less popular viewing, I think. If you flick through, chapters 13 to 21 is really the, the accounts of, okay, now they've got the land free from enemies. Who gets what? Uh, who gets what? Who inherits what from the Lord? Uh, from the tribes of Israel, who gets what? I think you'd probably have to be a, a slightly geeky lawyer to watch every episode, I think. Um, uh, that would be season two, chapters 13 to 21. And yet the funny thing is, um, if instead of kind of viewing the account, the story from the outside, if we'd been in there, if we'd been in the story 3,000 years ago, chapters 13 to 21 would have been the best bit. <laughs> it would have been the bit where after years of being a refugee, after years of wandering through the desert, kind of homeless, waiting for rest, we finally got it. And we're finally hearing what this land we're going to have is for us. We're finally being told, here's your patch, you can live in it, and no, there's no enemies coming to kill you. It'd be wonderful. This would have been like the moment of celebration. This would have been like, finally, we've got rest. And when Jesus Christ, a thousand years later, stood in Israel and said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He showed himself to be the fulfillment of all that had happened in Israel, all that's in Joshua, Jesus fulfilled. That just as God had promised the nation of Israel um, a physical land free from enemies and he gave it to them, he delivered. Well, so too in Christ, God has promised humanity wonderful things. Promised them the opportunity of life forever, free from enemies, free from death, forever. That's the promise God has made to us in Jesus Christ. So I guess I know some of us might have been here today and kind of heard the reading um, that the sermon's going to be on and thought, oh man, out of all the Sundays to come to church, I have to do it on the one with a big long list of names. Can't we look at something a little bit more relevant? Um, I know it might have sounded a bit like that. But the funny thing is, actually, if we skip over bits like this in the Old Testament, we're seriously missing out. We're missing out. Because it's kind of like, um, you know, on Christmas Eve, okay, Christmas Eve, I love to come down to see the, the presents under the Christmas tree, find the ones that are mine, and, you know, give them a good poke. I try and work out what it is. Obviously tell the Toblerone, Toblerone, you know, no, no one's prizes for guessing that. But, you know, you kind of give, them, give a rattle, what is it going to be? Try and guess, you know, what's in store for tomorrow? Uh, what gift have I got in store? 
I say I used to do that. I think I still do. Um, well, actually, these chapters here in Joshua, chapters 20 to 21, are here to show us actually what glorious future God has promised to us in Christ Jesus. They're here to give us a hint and a feel of if you're a Christian, what you will know forever. What you experience for eternity. What gift, glorious gift, God has promised for you and I. The gift offered to you if you trust in Jesus Christ. And we need that. And we need that because otherwise, um, actually, it'll be really hard to live for God now. It'll be hard to be obedient now if I've lost sight of where we're going and what God has promised it for us, what's in store. So really, that's the question of the passage of chapters 20 to 21. The question is, what kind of future will God give us? What does God offer us? And three things I'd love us to see tonight. The future God offers us is a living land, it's a permanent land, and it's a promised land. So first up, a living land, and that's chapter 20. And the principle we see here is that God values human life. God values human life. Uh, So we get this account of cities of refuge. So if you uh, turn me page 235, Joshua 20, and verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. So cities of refuge, they offer protection for manslaughter. Um, so back in Deuteronomy 19, uh, this had been commanded, um, and now we're basically seeing it being put into action. So the example see, um, given in Deuteronomy 19 is what you do, um, so you're in the wood in, uh, in Israel, you're chopping down a tree, chop, chop, and then the axe head flies off and kills someone. And what do you do when that person's brother comes after you with an axe? Okay, that's the issue at stake, that's the example given. Uh, so what do you do when their brother finds out and wants to kill you? So verse uh, 3, he's described as the avenger of blood. Um, so verse 4, what are they to do? They're to flee to these cities. And what happens? Verse 4, so they flee to one of these cities. They're to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders of that city. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive in their city and provide a place to live among them. If the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the elders must not surrender the fugitive because the fugitive killed their neighbor unintentionally and without malice or forethought. They're to stay in that city until they've stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who's serving at that time. Then they may go back to their own home in the town from which they fled. So this was a violent age to live in. And so in a violent age, how do you put provisions in to care for human life and to minimize killing and death? So the Lord commands these cities of refuge put in uh, where you could flee to if you'd killed someone and you could just wait for a fair trial. That's it. So why is this here? What does this show us about God? Uh, What does it show us about his promised land? It shows us that human life is valued. Do you see, both the life of the person killed, that's valued. Um, There should be a trial for their death to work out what went on and what an appropriate punishment is. The life of someone killed, that life is valued. But so too, actually, the life of the killer, that's valued too. Um, uh, They don't need to unnecessarily die. They want to stand before a trial to protect, um, make sure that no more life than is necessary is lost. So these cities of refuge are here because God values human life. And actually, in the culture of that time, if we'd been in the story there 3,000 years ago, hearing about these cities of refuge would have been brilliant. It would have been so different to everything else. 
So archaeologically, um, uh, there's been evidence dug up of the people groups who lived around them, the nations around them, um, uh, bodies of babies and toddlers who were sacrificed on an altar to give them a good harvest. This is a brutal age to live in. This is a culture where actually politics um, was worked out in tribal war, uh, where life was cheap, the life of soldiers fighting for you, the life of peasants who got in the way, the collateral damage and just the realistic portrayal of getting things done. But you see, here is the God of Israel who stands against that and who values human life and, and shapes cities to protect it. As I guess for us today, um, we live in a land which I say would be totally on board with this. Um, you know, we'd like to agree with the Human Rights Act, which states that all human life has dignity, value, worth. I mean, as a culture, UK, we're, um, we're proud of that. We're proud of a stance on that. And yet we are aware that as a society, there are, there are grey areas uh, where we can be in danger of, I guess, lip service. I mean, very real questions like, um, what do we do about the refugee crisis? What, what do we do? How, how do I respond? What do we do? I mean, many things to consider, I mean, politically, economically, um, security-wise, but what do we do? Or questions like, you know, actually, where do we draw the line on some of these ethical questions on, um, you know, beginning and end of life? Now, obviously, these are complicated issues. It's not just a simplistic answer. But our starting point has got to be, from chapter 20 of Joshua, our starting point has got to be the God who made human life values human life. That's got to be our starting point from which we then go on to engage, uh, discuss, and act. And that actually gives us confidence as Christians. Confidence to see people, even in a desperate situation, to see them as people created with value, whose lives intrinsically are value, because our God says so. So, on the one hand, this would have felt um, reading about cities of refuge, hearing about them back in the day, back then. It would have felt wonderful. Um, yeah, great. Uh, life's protected. But it still would have, it wouldn't have been a perfect day. If you like, there's a there's a cloud in the sky. And you see, death casts a shadow here. In this land, death casts a shadow. So the land is good in so many ways, but the reality is they're still having to work out, okay, what do we do about manslaughter? What, how do we deal with vengeance killings? And there will still be a need for justice and judges. Uh, there will still be a, a sad reality of mourning mothers, a bereaved friends. So the land's, the land's good, but it's not perfect. So these cities, on the one hand, were a great place you could go to await a fair trial, a place of refuge. But on the other hand, did you notice they're actually a prison? They're, they're like a jail. You can't leave until there's been justice and a death. Do you see that there in, in verse 6? So they stay in the city until they've stood trial before the assembly and until the death of a high priest who's serving at that time. Okay, so once the high priest dies, then they can go back to the hometown. Why? Why does a high priest have to die? I guess on the one hand, and perhaps practically, it kind of marked a, a new change in time, having a new high priest. And yet as Christians, we can only read this and see hints of the gospel, which we know in full in Jesus Christ. So in the cities of refuge, a killer could run and find justice, find a high priest 
whose death would somehow atone for their sin. And in the scriptures, see, we get, we get tasters of, these, of this, uh, tasters, hints of what was to come in Jesus Christ. So in the mercy of God, you see, no matter how big the guilt of our sin, no matter how big the uh, pain has been, uh, perhaps the pain inflicted on others, we can be assured that in the death of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, we can know atonement. We can know forgiveness. We can know what it's like to leave the jail and go back home. Because of the death of the great high priest. And our great high priest is Jesus Christ. So God values human life. But you see, he values it so much that he would sacrifice the life of his own son so that you and I could know life forever. That's how much God values human life. So it's a living land. And secondly, it's a permanent land. A permanent land, and that's chapter 21. Chapter 21 is uh, the account now of the Levites, who are kind of like the the priests. Uh, Their job is to help uh, the people of Israel kind of live obedient to God and to look after worship in the tabernacle. Uh, Chapter 21, they come now and ask, um, basically, where do we live? Uh, So you look at verse 1. Uh, please, verse 1, the family heads of the Levites approached uh, Eleazar the priest, Joshua son Nun, and the heads of the other tribal families of Israel at Shiloh and Cana, and said to them, the Lord commanded through Moses that you give us towns to live in with pasture, lo- flock, pasture lands for our livestock. So as the Lord had commanded, the Israelites gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands out of their own inheritance. Do you notice, out of all the groups uh, in Israel, the only ones who don't get their own inheritance are the Levites. They don't, they don't kind of get the rights to their own land. So everyone else gets an inheritance from the Lord, but not the Levites. So the Levites, you know, they come and basically ask that as God's commanded that other people give them land to live in, they should get it. But why don't they get any? Why? On the one hand, obviously it's practical to have the priests spread out throughout the land. But more than that, the Levites were to act as a living parable. The Levites were to uh, be a symbolically a symbolic reminder: the land they're living in is just temporary, but eternity is permanent. Um, so my parents have lived in their house uh, now uh, back home for 25 years. So they bought their house. Um, in their early 30s, the kind of all their kids were very young, and they bought the house thinking, okay, this is it, this is our family home till, I don't know, yeah, till, till we die. You know, this is it, we're, we're setting up shop here, and this is it. And so they really made the place their own. Um, they've painted every room in the house at least twice. Um, they've uh, you know, redone the kitchen, um, dad's spent a lot of time in the garden. I can remember as a boy being really excited when we moved in, and dad planted three trees, an apple tree, a cherry tree, and a pear tree. I thought, oh, I'm going to have a tree house and a zip wire between the two. Um, and then the rest of my childhood was the disappointment of how slowly trees grow. Um, but, you know, they, they, kind of, they, they knew they were going to be there for a while, so they really kind of settled in. And they brought, you know, a mindset, an attitude that, you know, this is home. You know, we're going to set up home here. But I guess uh, probably in a room like this in central London, I guess most of us in the past year and a half have moved house, moved flats, probably more than half of us, I imagine. Um, so you go to someone's house like that, and it's got a bit of a different feel. So I did the maths on it. I think in the last eight years, um, I've lived in six different houses. Um, I, only just, I left university, went to one city, worked there for a bit, moved to London, moved around a couple of times here. Um, you know, just general life, just moved around from house to house. But it does mean... 
when you're staying there, you have a very different attitude. So um, out of all the ha- those six houses I've lived in, I've only ever uh, painted one of the rooms of one of the houses, and that's because the bedroom was brown. Um, <laughs> only ever one. Uh, two houses ago, I had a, a back garden, uh, which is very nice. But, you know, I thought, well, I'm only going to be here a year and a half. Is there any point in making an effort in this garden? You know, I didn't, I didn't plant a tree, uh, anything like that. You know, well, no point in doing that. Um, so I've lived in perfectly nice hats, flowers, uh, flats, houses over the last few years, but never somewhere where I thought of as, this is home. You know, this is permanent home. And so it does just bring a different mindset and a different attitude to the place where you are. And there's a sense of that of which the Levites were to remind the rest of the people in Israel. They were to show them that this land they're living in, their promise, is great. It's not quite home. Actually, only eternity will bring true, permanent home. So as good as the land in Israel is, it's temporary. So just don't sit to it too tightly. By all means, create your farm, paint your house, that kind of thing, but just don't Sit to it too tightly. So the Levites are like a living parable that this world is temporary, but that eternity is permanent. So the Bible word often used is sojourner, sojourner, and it really just means a temporary stay. So sojourning, kind of sense of rootlessness to where you are. So if you trace this through, um, Deuteronomy 18 uh, verse 6 um, talks of these Levites as saying, if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all Israel, where he sojourns, where he sojourns. So the Levites live temporarily in the land of Israel. Okay, later David picks this up in uh, 1 Chronicles. Uh, he prays to God. And he, he lived in you know, palaces, houses in Israel. He says, we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow. So David knew that even in the land, he was living there temporarily. There was a sense of shadow to his time there. Uh, next up is Jesus Christ, uh, walks on uh, the same land in Israel, and he says, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. A sense of homelessness in the land. And then Peter, the Apostle Peter, just, uh, writes to Christians and describes them as beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So the bottom line is this. London isn't our permanent home. This world is just temporary. Eternity is permanent. So here and now, actually, we are sojourners. Um, and that's kind of what the Levite priests were to remind the people of. Verse 3, they to given land out of other people's inheritance. Um, so I don't know if it's just me, but um, when people, um, uh, people describe me or our generation as generation rent, it gets me a little bit annoyed every time. Is that just me? I don't really mind being described as a millennial, but generation rent. Just, do you know? Um, I guess it normally comes from people a generation older who lived in a, economically at times, probably easier to get money together for a deposit, easier to buy a house in London, that kind of thing. Um, And realistically, some of us here in this room, for whatever reason, will never be able to buy a property. Some of us won't be able to buy a property here in London. We will always pay rent. Now, of course, some of us uh, will be able to, some of us can, some of us have. Um, so you can, that's great. Sensible stewardship of money, I'm sure, to be able to invest money into a place where you have money at the end of it rather than just going to a landlord. Sensible, I'm sure. But for whatever reason, some of us here will never 
have that same kind of um, uh, uh, safety, safety net of a property. But because of this, because we, this land is just temporary, it means we can have a contentment about that. It means we don't have to feel gutted or bitter about that. Because we know that in Jesus Christ, the promise of permanence is to come. The best is yet to come. In the new creation, then we will live forever. And actually, that's liberating. It's, it's pretty liberating in a city where living in, it, in London can feel like you've got to squeeze everything out of the now. You heard of the phrase FOMO? F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. You heard of that phrase, FOMO? So much of London can feel like driving you into FOMO. Um, you know, you've got to squeeze all the experiences out here while you can. You know, if you've, if you've got to the end of your 20s and you haven't had that, um, I know, that, that romantic relationship, then you've really missed out. You know, you won't get that kind of intimacy again. Or, you know, if you haven't had all those travel experiences, when are you going to see all those different parts of the world? If you haven't done that, you're missing out. If you haven't had a, had a shot getting up there, that dream career path, you'll get to your 40s, you'll get to your 50s, look back and think, man, I blew it. But you see, the gospel liberates us from that. It liberates us by telling us that in Christ, I have the hope of something lasting. That means I can live now, and I can know that the best is yet to come. It means right now I can miss out on things. I can be obedient to God and miss out on things. I can make sacrifices now and miss out on things. Knowing I will enjoy permanent life in all its fullness for oodles of time in heaven. It's going to be a permanent land. And lastly, it's a promised land. Uh, I don't know about you, I am... Um, on the one hand, I love uh, hearing uh, Bible passages and sermons on heaven, on the new creation. It gets me excited. I want to go there. But there's always part of me nagging away, thinking, isn't it just a bit too good to be true? Is it a bit pie in the sky? Um, I can remember being, I was 18, uh, a group of guys, and um, one of my friends asked me, said, so Dickie, you're a Christian, um, you want to go to heaven. Uh, what do you think heaven will be like? Um, and I thought, oh, gosh, put on the spot here. But I kind of mumbled something out like, um, um, uh, heaven will be a place where we um, uh, uh, we have no um, sin, so everyone's uh, happy all the time, and it lasts forever, and there's no no, no death, and um, we're with Jesus forever. He burst out laughing. He laughed in my face. It wasn't my best friend. Um <laughs> But on one hand, saying that, I felt like a bit of a muppet. How do we know? How do we know these promises? It's going to be a land full of life. It's going to be permanent. How do I know that's true? Here's the answer. God has promised. It's as simple as that. God has promised it. God always keeps his promise. So generally, I like to think of myself as a man of my word. I like to think that if I say I'll do something, I'll do it. If I'll be somewhere, I'll, I'll be somewhere. But of course, if you ask our ever patient and gracious administrators here at church, they'll tell you from time to time, I can be a little bit erratic. Um, and of course, we're all like that. We're all inconsistent, aren't we? 
So in some ways, we get used to just taking each other with a bit of a pinch of salt. <laughs> you know, um, oh, uh, see you for lunch on Saturday. Yeah, great. And then you think to yourself, I didn't see you write that down in your diary. And if I don't text you on Wednesday to remind you, I'm pretty sure you're going to double book yourself. Or, uh, you know, um, the colleague who uh, says, yeah, I'll get that piece of work to you by uh, first thing tomorrow morning. And you think, yeah, I'm going to have to chase you for that, aren't, aren't I? Um, of course, we're all like that, aren't we? We're all inconsistent. Um, and so we kind of get used to, I don't know, taking stuff like that with a bit of pinch of salt and getting ready to protect ourselves when it doesn't, doesn't work out. But God is not like that. God is fundamentally a promise keeper. So look at chapter 21 and verses 43 to 45. Here are the key verses of all of Joshua. Chapter 21, verses 43 to 45 on page 237. And as I read it out, just notice the emphasis on God's promises. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors. And they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. God's a promise keeper. These verses are like the theological lens through which to kind of look back at Joshua through. It's promise made, promise fulfilled. Promise made, promise fulfilled. Promise made, promise fulfilled. So you see, in history, 3,000 years ago, God made a promise to Israel, and he kept it. Promised to give them land and rest from enemies, he kept it. To us in Christ... If you're a Christian, God has made the promise that for eternity you will know rest in a land forever. He will bring that through to completion. That is a fact. Because God's promised it. It's a fact. So in some ways, this isn't a promise to take with a pinch of salt. I kind of hedge your bets. Actually, this means this is a promise you can, you can lean on with all your weight. Because God's a promise keeper. That's who he is. And that's the God we worship. I know for some of us, this will be brand new. And I'm saying, yeah, genuinely, you can go through your whole Bible with a highlighter, highlight any promise God has made, and he either has kept it or he will keep it. So read it, make sure you've understood the promise correctly, etc. But God will keep that promise. I know, I guess some of us are probably weighing up how seriously to take Christianity, how seriously to live the Christian life. Perhaps some of us feel kind of caught in two minds. Of course, on the one hand, look into stuff like the evidence of the resurrection. Look into some things like um, the evidence of scripture. Uh, Is it really eyewitness documents? But here's the bottom line. Will you take God at his word? In Christ, God has promised us there will be a day when judgment will happen. And the only way to know rest forever and life forever is through the death of the great high priest who can set you free, Jesus Christ. And he calls us to trust in him. Please, take God at his word. I guess others of us... um, Perhaps we've known this for, it feels like donkey's years. You know, the fact that God keeps his promise is a classic Sunday school thing. You know, it's a, a classic turn to Christianity. 
I guess sometimes something like that, there's just a danger that over time we become a bit desensitized to it, um, or even just a tad forgetful. Because sometimes just the promises of the world can really look like they're delivering for people. They can really look like they're, they're working out well for people. But you see the contrast. God's promises last forever. They're fulfilled for eternity. They last forever. So why listen to anyone else's promises? I know some of us will be here uh, finding living life uh, in London feels like being a sojourner, um, not fitting in, and it's hard. Some of us here are in a weekly routine of sacrifice for the gospel, and it hurts, and we're exhausted. Well, keep going. Because God's promises about eternity are true. They really are. You can lean on them with all your weight. And that means this week you can keep going. Because God keeps his promises. And it means I can make risky decisions for the gospel. It means actually I can risk my career prospects. I can risk my financial security. I can even risk my physical safety. Because I know that the promises of God about eternity are true. And they're guaranteed to be fulfilled. Uh, So I've got a friend called um, Johnny. Uh, He's in his late 20s, early 30s. And uh, a year or or so ago, he moved out uh, from UK where he'd grown up. uh, Moved out to a tiny country in West Africa um, to live there. Uh, he's, um, he's gone out there uh, basically to do whatever he can to help the very small church scene that's there. And the country recently declared a uh, Muslim state a few months ago. It's not aggressive, uh, aggressively so yet, but yet, who knows the future. But Johnny's gone out there. Uh, I, I've been out there for a week once to see what the country was like. In this country, 60% uh, live in poverty. I've been to one of the slums. Uh, in the slums, you see the uh, mud huts the children are living in. Um, no running water, um, no toilets. A toilet is just a, a hole in the ground dug with a spade. And they hardly ever hear the gospel. And Johnny's gone out there. Actually, he's, he's single. And he's missing out on quite a lot of friendship back home. He's missing out on relationships. He's missing out on um, lots of opportunities for things I can do here in London. He really is missing out. But you see, God always keeps his promises. And so that has set Johnny free to live for him. He knows God keeps his promise that human life is valued. And so that set Johnny free to see even a a distant country and a desperate people as human beings with value. Because God has promised it so. He's been set free to live really a, a sojourner existence. You ask him where's home, and it's kind of like, well, I don't know, UK doesn't really feel like home anymore, and over there doesn't quite feel like home anymore. I don't really know where home is. But the gospel's liberated him. It's set him free to live that existence, knowing that his permanent home is in heaven. That's where his citizenship is. That's where he's going. And so he's free. He's free now to make risky decisions for it. That's not always easy for him. I guess some days are going to be really hard. Some days are really lonely. But what is it throughout the ups and downs that keeps him going? Oh, it's God's promises. It's God's promises. They're true. 
verse 45 is true. As we close, let's have a look at verse 45 again. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. That's the promise of the gospel. Life valued forever, given to us through the death of God's son, our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And this land is just temporary, but eternity is forever. And we can be sure, we can know with certainty, because God's promised it, and I can take him at his word. That's the kind of God we worship, one we can confidently trust.